Timothy chapter 2. I'd like to read verses uh, 15 through 19 this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 15 through 19. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and thus they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. <laughs> it's a long way away. I put a lot of words on that slide. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. I want to, uh, I want to uh, close this morning focused on that firm foundation of God. And if we have time, I'm also going to make a couple comments about the seal that is mentioned in verse 19. So really the goal is to get to verse 19. But in order to get to verse 19, I think it's important for us to consider the context of what we've just read, to, to look at this passage as a, as a unit. And so I want to start this morning with the context before we get to verse 19. I want to focus for a few moments on verses 15 through 18. So in verse 15, we are instructed to be diligent, to present ourselves approved to God as workmen who do not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. It's one of those scriptures that focuses our attention on the importance of God's word and of being rooted in, grounded in the word of God, handling accurately the word of truth, being a people of the word. So, um, uh, for whatever it's worth, um, this is one of those opportunities for me to just uh, take a step back and thank God for the influences that I've enjoyed in my life. I grew up in an Assembly of God missionary home, um, uh, acquainted with um, uh, Pentecostal circles, familiar with an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. And, and while... Uh, while there was also a lot of emphasis on the Word of God, I have to admit that, um, that what stood out to me in many respects was an emphasis on the role of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. And then my parents put me in a school run by Baptist missionaries. When I, when I, uh, when I got into fourth grade, I was there in fourth grade and in fifth grade, Sixth grade and seventh grade were complicated. Eighth grade, um, back in that school, and, and had one, one stable time in, in life from eighth grade through my senior year in high school with these Baptist missionaries. And, and uh, this emphasis on the importance of God's word. I'm thankful, I'm thankful for the influences of the importance of the Holy Spirit and the importance of the word of God. The role of the Holy Spirit and the role of the Word of God in the lives of believers. We are to be a people of the Word. 
We're to be a people of the word. And, and in, this, in this passage, in this verse 15, there are at least two reasons given to us for being a people of the word. The first is there's spiritual work to be done. We're supposed to be workmen. We are supposed to be workmen. We are people of the word because there's work to be done. And our work is spiritual work that is done by familiarity with the word of God. If, if you're a carpenter, you need tools. If you're a Christian, you need tools. The tools of the Christian life are, are, are I've already talked about the Holy Spirit. I'm going to emphasize this, this primacy of the word of God as that which equips us as workmen to do the will of God. We need to be a people of the word. We need to be a people that are rooted in and whose work is based upon the power of God's word. But secondly, in this scripture, we are uh, encouraged to be a people of the word who rightly divide the word of truth because of what comes next in this passage. And that is that there is falsehood in the world around us and if we are not rooted and grounded in the word of God, we will be, be easy picking for the false doctrines that run, around, uh, uh, that run around and that Satan uses to distract us. I promise that I am not still sick or contagious. I'm just, it's just the first Sunday back and this is what happens. Um, uh, uh, we are to overcome, we are to be uh, a people rooted, grounded in the word of God so that we are not susceptible to the winds of doctrine that can so easily deceive people. Um, the, longer, the longer I live, um, the more I would just want, I, I, I see this in this congregation just, just by way of reminder. You can do way worse than to be called solid. Be solid. Be solid. Be the dependable people in an unstable world. Right? To be solid, to be rooted, to be grounded, to be stable. Um, it's not flashy, but it's dependable. It's dependable. And in the world that we live in today, I think you could do a lot worse than to be stable. You could do a lot worse than to provide that for the people around you, to be stable, to be rooted and grounded in the word of God. All right. Why? Because, because in this passage, we're dealing with the possibility of falsehood, of being deceived by falsehood. So notice these facts about falsehood. First of all, verse 15 points to us the importance of being a people of the word. Let me move secondly through this passage into some facts that were told in this passage about falsehood or about error. The first one is, uh, is verse 17, that, that it spreads like gangrene. That's the word that's used in, uh, in the New American Standard. Facts about falsehood or error. It's like gangrene. It's like gangrene. Um, the King James reads a canker. Some have said it's cancer. The point of all these sicknesses is something like this. They're deadly and they spread. They start one size, but they don't stay there. 
They grow. They spread. And that's the idea behind falsehood or error. One of the things about error is that when it begins, it's fairly small and innocuous. But what you find out about error is that it has tentacles that that have a tendency to grow and that when you get to a certain place and time, what you find out is that that error has built a crack in the foundation that doesn't stand the test when the need of the moment arises. Falsehood is not content to stay what it is. It's like gangrene or like cancer. It spreads and it gets worse over time. It grows, it spreads, and it deepens. And I want to just pause here for a second and mention the fact that this is an absolutely immutable truth of evil. It's an immutable truth of evil. Evil in any form, whether it's sin or whether it's falsehood, evil in ever in, in any form is never satisfied with its current level. It is never satisfied with its current level. It will, let me, let me, use, it, uh, let me use it in the realm of sin for just a moment. Sin will always take you further than you intended to go, make you stay longer than you intended to stay, and make you pay a higher price than you ever intended to pay. That is the nature of evil. Evil never stays dormant. It's, it's, why, it's why you can't make peace with it. Because evil spreads. Evil deepens. It's what it does. It's within its very nature. It's it's simply the fact of what it is. You take a seed, you plant it in the ground, it is going to produce what the seed is. It is not possible to plant a, I don't even know. I think I know what a geranium is. I don't know why a geranium came to mind. I have no idea. But if you plant a geranium seed, you're going to get geraniums. Why? Because that's the nature of the seed. That's what it is. The nature of evil is to grow and to spread and to deepen and to never be content with what it is. It will make you stay longer. It will make you pay more. It just spreads. Falsehood, sin, doesn't matter what the form the evil takes. This is the nature of it. The way it says it here is that, that we are to avoid We are to avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. It's guaranteed. It will lead to further ungodliness. That's just what evil does. That's what falsehood does. It leads to further ungodliness. So it's like a gangrene. It's it's a cancer, first of all. Second of all, it's spread by false and evil men. It's spread by false and evil men. Evil and falsehood are spread by evil and false men. Now, we know very little about Hymenaeus. Most most commentators believe that he's referred to in in, uh, 1 Timothy, that the name is referring to the same person. It's not a super common name. So he's mentioned in 
in, uh, in 1 Timothy. Most believe he's the same person. Philetus, we don't know anything about him. We don't know anything about him. He's mentioned here. This is the only mention he gets. But what we do find out is that their falsehood and evil destroyed people's lives by undermining their faith. I, I, have, uh, I have often thought to myself how cool it would be to have been mentioned in Scripture. Right? Um, I, I, my name comes from Scripture, but I myself was not named in Scripture. Uh, bummer for me. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't there at that time. I don't know if even if I had been there, if I'd have made it into the story, right? But, but there are some people you wouldn't want to be named as, and this would be two of them, right? People whose influence was, was to undermine the faith of others, was to undermine the faith of others. I've actually thought about this a fair amount, there are some pretty strong things that are said. You know, um, I just interrupted my own sentence. It's one thing to sin, and I'm not making light of that. It's one thing to sin. It's another thing to incite sin in others. To sin is common to all. We sin, we fail. But to be a promoter of the sin that destroys others is a terrible thing. And God takes it very seriously. To be named as someone whose life testimony is that you undermined the faith of others is a serious accusation. It's a serious charge. And so we have here this encouragement to be people who are rooted in the Word of God unlike evil men whose influence undermines the faith of others. Let us not be those kinds of people. The third thing about falsehood and error that we see in this, in this passage is that, um, that their falsehood was, was a falsehood about the resurrection, which is one of the essentials of the Christian faith. It is one of the essentials of the Christian faith. It seems as best as we can determine, that their error was something like this. It was a spiritualizing of resurrection so that no one had to think about a resurrection to come. In other words, it might have been something like this. Well, Paul said, because listen, the, the, the most effective forms of error are always the ones that are closest to the truth. Right? They need to be rooted in something that's reasonable. Most people don't fall for blatant, outright error. But they've got to be close to the truth. So it would be something like this. Paul said, we're talking about baptism, that we were crucified with Christ. Right? That when you won't go down into the waters of baptism, you are buried with him. Well, let's just take the next step and say that you're raised with him as well. That means that we have already been resurrected. The resurrection is not a literal fact to look forward to in the future. It's a spiritual fact that has already occurred. And in spiritualizing the resurrection, these men were denying the fact of a resurrection to come. Well, it's already happened. It's, it's not something that you need to be worried about in the future. 
We're raised with Christ, therefore the resurrection has already occurred, therefore it's not something to think about in the future. It was serious enough that the, that the Apostle Paul says this false doctrine has undermined the faith of some. That the faith of some is no longer being lived in light of a resurrection to come. And that's a serious problem. I just want to say this this morning as, as uh, my, my intention is not to criticize anyone, but to simply talk openly about things that I think are, are useful for us to remind ourselves of. How many of you are familiar with Jordan Peterson? How many of you have appreciated a lot of what he has taught? Agreed. Please hear this, however. While this man makes use of Scripture, he psychologizes all of it. If you ask him, this is, I haven't listened to him recently, but I did listen to him a lot for a time. What you can never nail him down on is, did Jesus die on the cross and rise from the dead as the only means to provide salvation for humankind? He will take that story and spiritualize it ten ways and pull out good lessons for life. But he will not declare Jesus Christ as the dead, buried, risen Son of God for the Savior, as the Savior of the world. Please hear this. He might have valuable things to teach about life, but he won't get anybody to heaven. Why? Because you can't spiritualize and psychologize a truth and, and ignore the kernel of that truth. There is no name given under heaven by which men can be saved other than the name of Jesus Christ. And please hear this. Jesus is not a symbol for the rebirth of human beings into a better life than they lived before. He is the sacrifice for sin, apart from which there is no forgiveness for sins, apart from which there is no hope for humankind. You can't spiritualize that. It's just what it is. So, with all the value, and I'm not discouraging you from listening to the teachings of Jordan Peterson, I'm simply saying this is an example of the kind of teaching that could subvert the faith of some, leading it into a moralistic form of human self-improvement that denies the reality of salvation through Jesus Christ. Apart from the resurrection, there is no hope from our, for our future. There is no hope for us in death. The resurrection is a literal fact that is yet to come. We look forward to it as the people of God. And it ought never to be moralized, spiritualized, or psychologized out of the fact of what we hope for as God's people. What we're looking forward to in the future. Does that make sense? Okay. It's not a slam on Jordan Peterson. May the Lord be pleased to save him, to show him Jesus Christ, because he's a clear thinker who needs Jesus. Amen? All right. <clears throat>
The resurrection was the issue in question here. All right. Facts about, about error. Notice thirdly this. Notice this idea of the upset faith of some versus the firm foundation that's referred to in verse uh, 19. Notice that, that in verse 18, we're reading about Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth. <clears throat> Paul doesn't say they never had it. He said they have gone astray from it. <clears throat> They've wandered away from it. <clears throat> and then he says this. Not only have they wandered away from the truth, but they have actually upset the faith of others. They've upset the faith of others. Now, that's a terrible thought to think about. That it's possible to be a person of faith whose faith gets upset somewhere along the line. What does it mean to be someone whose faith is upset? Well, we have, we have that idea in verse 18, the upsetting of, of the faith of some, versus what we read in verse 19, that there is a firm foundation. There is a firm foundation. It's one of those passages that just brings up this question. Is a person's faith upsettable? Or is faith a firm foundation from which people can never fall? Is it something that can be overturned, or is it secure? Well, what is your faith? Is it overturnable, or is it secure? And we have these two things coexisting in this passage side by side. So I could be tempted this morning to say, well, we're going to focus on the idea of eternal security versus the ability to forfeit one's salvation, and what does the Bible teach about this? Instead, I'd like to do this this morning. I'd like to just point out three things about the, the tension between faith that can be upset and faith as a firm foundation. Can I just point out three things that Scripture seems to teach? And then you'll have to live with the discomfort of this. Okay? If you want to come up with an absolutely firm answer, I have a firm, I, I have a belief. I'd like you to have one too. We can have enjoyable discussions together. But I want to point out three things that Scripture seems to tell us about faith that can be upset and a firm foundation. Okay? Here's the first one. The first one is that there is not a single warning that is given to us in Scripture that is not given to us for a reason. The warnings of Scripture are given to us for a reason. So when Scripture says things like, um, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, or, or when Hebrews 2 says that, that, um, that you should beware uh, the possibility of neglecting so great a salvation, the warnings that are given to us in Scripture are given to us for a reason. God doesn't warn us about impossibilities. He warns us about things for a good reason. So we have warnings. Hebrews 2, 3, chapter 2, verse 3, where we're warned about neglecting a great salvation. Or, or Hebrews 6, or Hebrews 10, 
Or 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3 that tells us that at the last days there's going to be a great falling away. We're warned about these things. And Scripture doesn't warn us about things for no reason. The second thing that we need to make note of here is that there is not a single warning given to us in Scripture that has not been disregarded and violated by a human being. Just stop and think about the warnings. In the day you eat of this tree, you will surely die. What did they do? They had been warned, but they ate. They had been warned. God had warned them, and they ate, right? When Israel entered the promised land, they went through this massive ceremony. The leaders of the 12 tribes, six were stationed on one hill, and six were stationed on another hill. And the people had to stand in between the two hills as the covenant was read to them. The covenant was, if you obey me, here's the blessings you will enjoy. And if you disobey me, Here's the curses that will come upon you. And the covenant was read clearly before them, and they knew what the consequences were. The warning was there in spades before them with the symbolism of leaders standing on two hills, and we've got a choice. Choose life or choose death. And guess what they eventually did? Right? They disregarded the warning and they began to worship false gods, and they went their own way, and they came under the curses of the covenant. It's just, you just read about it over and over and over and over again. And then, if we're perfectly honest, most of us, raised in Christian homes, knew better, and at some point in our lives, we disregarded what we knew was told to us in Scripture, and we did something that was sinful against God, and we experienced the pain that comes as a consequence, and we stepped back and we said to ourselves, I was warned, I knew better than this, and I did it anyways. What's the matter with me? Right? right? It's the human condition. It's the human experience. It's important for us to understand that there has never been a warning that somebody somewhere hasn't violated. It's what we human beings did. And actually, if we're honest, it's just way more common than we'd like to admit. It's kind of what we do. Okay? So here I am. I've just thrown down some heavy weights on the side of your faith can really be upset. You better pay attention and be warned because the warnings of Scripture are there for a good reason. But i got to tell you, this third truth is vitally important, and that is this, that while the warnings are, are vital, so are the promises. So are the promises. And I want you to know this morning that there is not a single promise in Scripture that God is not able or does not intend to keep. So listen to this. Jesus said, He that comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. And I want you to know that that promise is for you. That promise is for you. 
You come to Him in faith and He will not cast you out. Please hear this this morning. I don't know what sins are in your past. I don't know what you've done. Some of us have walked in some dark days and have had times in our lives when we lived under things that we look back on with shame and regret. I want you to know that the, that the saving work of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cover every sin and to blot out the guilt and the shame of a conscience that accuses you. The price has been paid. Your sins have been forgiven. And when you come to Christ in faith, He will never look at you in shock and say, your sins are too deep. He promises, I will never cast you out. I will not cast you out. That is good for you. And his promise is true. I want you to know that Jude 24 is true. He is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his throne with exceeding joy. He is able to do that. So the promise of a firm foundation is something that you can bank on, count on, your faith is eternally secure. And now you can decide what to do with the fact that there's both warnings and promises in Scripture, and they're both valid. They're both there for a reason. They're both true. Yes, we have to grapple with that. Take the warnings seriously, and then stand on the promises of God. Stand on the promises of God. He's able to keep you from falling. All right, let's close this morning looking at the foundation, the firm foundation that we just talked about. Let's look at this and let's, let's close with this idea this morning. What is this firm foundation? What is the firm foundation? Verse 19, nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. What is this firm foundation? Well, there's two views held by the commentators. Um, I just want you to know what I do with this. When, um, how many of you like clarity? How many of you are black and white people? You want precision. You, that's your tendency you want? Um, sorry, the world's not always that way. Just not what it is. This, is. this is the conclusion I've come to. I want you to know that I may indeed be wrong. I don't believe that God is an unclear God. I believe that when he leaves room for interpretation, it's because he deliberately wanted to leave room for interpretation. I think that a lot of times when commentators are battling over, it's got to be this or it's got to be this, a lot of times God is saying, well, you both have such strong cases for a good reason. I wanted to teach two lessons from this passage, right? I, I believe that's often the case. Maybe not always, but often commentators come to this passage and they say, what is this firm foundation? And they twist themselves in knots defending one of, of, the, one or, of two options that are usually presented. The first is that the foundation of God refers to the church. That it refers to the church. And so they look at within the passage and they say things like, well, this is 
um, as opposed to the faith of some that are shaken. And while the faith of some are shaken, the, the church is a firm foundation that is never shaken from the truth of Jesus Christ. And so they look within the passage and they say, that seems to be what's the case. The faith of some individuals is shakable, but the church as a whole will never be shaken because it is the firm foundation of God. And then they look back into, uh, into the writings of Paul to Timothy, and they see 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, But in case I am delayed, I write to you, so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of God, the pillar and support of the truth. And they look at it and they go, there it is, the church as the pillar, the foundation, the support of the truth. And they say, well, there it is. The foundation of God is the church in this, in this passage. That the church was established by God and it will be built and the gates of hell will not prevail because the pillar of truth is the church. It is the foundation of God. He's the one that laid the church down. And so some people will be shaken, but the church will never fail. And you go, ah, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's got a point. Along come others, however, and they say, well, you've got to look at the, the, the broader teaching of Scripture. And really, the fact that the church is, is stable and solid and the pillar and the ground of the truth is not based on any strength that the church has itself. It's based upon the fact that the churches, we sing it in our hymns, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. And the, 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 the right answer to any question like, what is the foundation, is Jesus. You can't put anything else in the category of Jesus. right? Not even the church. In fact, the Apostle Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 3, while he's writing about the apostles and the prophets as being the foundation upon which the church is built, he says this, he says, yes, the church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, but there is no other foundation that can be laid other than the one that was laid, which is Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 3.11. And so what the Apostle Paul says is something like this. There's other things that you can look at as being foundational upon which the church has been built, like the apostles and the prophets. But the foundation of all foundations is only one, and he is Jesus Christ. He is the true foundation. All other things are just foundational built upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the commentators go back and forth. Ah, the foundation in this passage is the church. Ah, the foundation in this passage is really Jesus Christ upon which the church is built. And I sit back and I just say to myself, I really think it's both. I really think there's a sense in which this passage can refer to both the church and to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the foundation of the church. Jesus Christ, who is the foundation of the church. So which is correct? Which is correct? Those that like precision, that want to say that there's only one strict interpretation of every passage of Scripture, have to choose. They have to choose. 
But let me just take a second before I finish this on, on foundations and just make this observation. I think it's important to take a step back and just remind ourselves about some of the things that Scripture has to say about this word foundation. Let's just look at it a little bit more broadly for a second. Scripture has some interesting things to say about foundations. The first one is this. This is a, this is a word that is used a lot of times in Scripture. One of the most common ways it's used is this, that, that it talks about the foundation of the world or the foundations of the earth. Now, we, we, um, we modern people that have put satellites in space and telescopes in space, and we have the ability to take pictures of things that people have never had the opportunity to see, we look at it and we say, hang on a second. You know, those ancient pictures, uh, you've probably seen them, of the world sitting on the back of a giant elephant, you know, something, some really big animal. Why? Because the earth has foundations. It's got to rest on something. We know that this planet is a ball that's just traveling around in space, in space. Now, I'm going to look around here for a second and just acknowledge something as a, to me, a point of humor, okay? Um, I don't know where anybody in here is, but there are, there, there's a whole field out there that is flat earth field and for all I know, there's probably somebody on planet Earth that probably still believes the Earth is piggybacking on the back of a giant elephant. And, you know, and what is the elephant standing on? I don't know what the elephant's standing on, but everything's got to rest on something. I think it's important to take a step back and to, and to recognize what the Bible is talking about when it talks about an Earth that has foundations. Here's what it means. It means, first of all, that it has a beginning. It was founded. Anything that is founded has a beginning. It means someone started it. Someone put it in place. Someone made it this way. The earth having foundations means it has a beginning. It also means that it has something solid, something stable that it's built upon. That would be something like natural law. The ancients didn't have a way of understanding this, but we today can look at it and say, the earth doesn't really need a giant elephant to sit on because it's, it's spinning around a globe, uh, spinning around a globe, spinning around a, a solar system because of the forces of gravity and it's in space because We've got an atmosphere around it. We can breathe. It's, it's, it's in this greater empty space of nothingness. And, and we've got these explanations for things. But here's the fact of the matter. The fact of the matter is that this world that we live in is finely tuned and precisely ordered for life. Why? Because we live in a world that has foundations. 
It has laws that, that, that cause it to operate and function the way it does. Because God intended to put you and me here. And this world is finely tuned for life. It's finely tuned for us. It means simply that you can count on things. That it's, it functions, and it functions consistently, and it functions well. Now, sin being what it is, it doesn't function perfectly. We have times of drought. We have times of greater heat and less heat. But the fact of the matter is, everything exists within parameters that allow for human existence, that allow for human beings to exist. It's a world with foundations. But it also refers to one other thing. It refers to the fact that God has made a world with wisdom built into it. One second on this. Proverbs 3.19 tells us that there is a wisdom that the world was built upon. And I, listen, I, I just want to say, if, if you're beneath the age of 21, random, I just picked it, please look at me for a second and pay attention to this for one second. The world is telling you, in some ways, maybe for the first time in human history, at least on a global scale, is demanding that you ignore the foundations of wisdom upon which God established the world to function. Those foundations are things like this. In the beginning, God made them male and female. These have been foundational concepts through all of time. Human culture has existed based upon these concepts. They're not optional. They're not optional. They're foundational to human flourishing. I want you to know this. The world will not become a better place by ignoring the gender binary. It's not going to be better. It's going to destabilize things. You're not nice for believing things about people that will destroy them. That's not nice. The world has flipped this around and is telling us, if you believe in a binary, you're bigoted. You're mean-spirited. You're discriminatory. It's not true. You love people, and you love them enough to want them to live within the confines of how God made them to be. God's ways are good for us. They're foundational to us. You have to understand that this message that is being pumped so deliberately, so consistently, so constantly, that says, if you view things differently, you are a bad, mean-spirited person, is just not true. Listen to me, if you are holding these concepts and you are proclaiming them mean-spiritedly, angrily, insultingly to other people, then may the Holy Spirit convict you and make you nice. Amen? We don't need to be mean-spirited about it, but please hear this. Telling people the truth about the basics upon which the world was founded 
is just something that God has called us to do. We have to hold on to these truths. Marriage is between a man and a woman. That's the way it's supposed to work. It's healthy for us that way. These are the foundations of wisdom upon which God established the world, and it's the only way the world's going to work well. If we lose it, it's going to fall apart. These are vital foundations. You don't have to be mean because you believe these things. Don't let the world pigeonhole you into thinking that if you believe them, you're mean-spirited. It's not true. You can love people and believe the truth. In fact, I would suggest that the truth is necessary to loving people well. Amen? These are foundations. These are foundations. Psalm, I didn't put it up there. Psalm uh, 11, verse 3, famously asks the question, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, we're living in that world where the foundations are being systematically deconstructed. And it's being forced upon us. It's being shoved on us. There's a relentless drumbeat of media that is telling us that these foundations are not right. That they're not right. Part of me just wants to say this. I, I don't know if I'm right or not. Part of me wants to say, just grin and bear it for a while. Because the fruit of this is going to show itself for what it is. And give it another 20 years and everyone's going to be looking back at this saying, that was the most crazy experiment we ever tried because that did not work well. But another part of me is really concerned because there's a moral twist to this that is demanding, listen, that even if we go back to the concepts of gender, is striving to erode the basic ideas of morality that God has established for this world to function upon. And maybe that's the real battle that's being fought today. Maybe it's not about gender or even about marriage. Maybe it's about eroding the foundations of morality so that people don't know what's good and what's evil anymore. Whatever you say about all of that, it is vital for us to be rooted and grounded in the wisdom of God that is foundational to the way his world works. These are the foundations. We cannot allow them to be eroded. What will the righteous do if the foundations are destroyed? So, so what do we do? We're talking about foundations. What do we do? Well, I would just say this. I don't think it matters whether you take a strict approach to whether the foundation that is spoken of in this verse is the church or Jesus Christ, because in the end, it amounts to much of the same thing. It amounts to much of the same thing. Listen, the only reason the church is what the church is is because of Jesus Christ. The only message that the church has to proclaim is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So for the church to be the foundation is to say that the church's foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. These two are inseparable. They're indivisible. 
And, and so while it might matter to an armchair theologian somewhere who wants the exegesis and the hermeneutic to be exactly correct, in practical terms, it really doesn't matter anyways. In practical terms, it doesn't matter. Because here's what we're saying. This matter of foundations is so important to God. Whether the foundation that is spoken of here is the church or Jesus Christ, what we need to remember, number one, is that neither one will ever be destroyed. And this is something we need to take heart in. No matter what you see happening in the, in the world today, number one, Number two, no matter how many people's faith you see being upset. And number three, no matter how many church denominations go the way of the world in disobedience to the word of God, in the end, the church will never fail. When that church goes that direction, I promise you God will raise up another. I promise you. When a denomination goes hell-bent against the word of God, I promise you another will come on the scene. God will never be without a church witness on planet Earth until he takes us all out of here by rapture. The church is going to be the church. It is truly a foundation of this world. And you know why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ never fails, and he is the foundation of the church. He put himself on the line when he said, I will build my church. I am the foundation of the church. So please hear this. Get concerned, but don't ever get depressed. Look at the world around you and have compassion on a lost world, but never get disillusioned. Never fall into despair. Because it's not the end of all things. The church will be the church, and the gospel will always be the gospel. It's okay. It's not okay, but it's okay. Because the church will be the church. This world's not going to spin off, his access, uh, off its axis. God is still the God of this show. He still is. And secondly, whether you look at this passage and say that the foundation is the church or the foundation of Jesus Christ, both will eternally uphold the truth as the firm foundation upon which we can stand. And, and this is just something that I keep coming back to. I believe this is one of those things that needs to be deeply embedded in the vision of who we are as the people of God. That in a world that is going insane, in a world that falls apart, we have a firm foundation. We can be the untroubled presence that just smiles at the rest of the world and goes, Go wherever you want to go. When your life falls apart, come on back. We're not all together. We don't have it perfect, but we can tell you where to go. We can point you in the right direction. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, as fellow failures, we can point you to the solution of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the truth is the truth is the truth. And it will never fail. And upon this rock we have been built. Upon this the church is founded. Upon this you and I can have confidence and we can just remain humbly and confidently stable. I know whom I have believed. And I know that he is able.
to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. The day of resurrection is coming, and, and when it does, our ticket will have been punched by the Lord Jesus Christ. The church is one foundation. Amen? So I'm urging us, this basic meat and potatoes message, look at the world around you, don't be disheartened. The world keeps spinning, and the cycles of philosophies and of ideas come and they go. Yeah, it's a little more in your face today because of the media, but let the church be the church. Be rooted and grounded in the truth of Jesus Christ. And I do believe this to be true. I believe that the more off track the world gets, the more the word of God will prove to be true because the bigger the mess will get. And the world will have to start looking for some place that has some kind of answer that they can root themselves in again. And I think there will be a day when the church again will come into vogue. <laughs> and the world will say, we need an answer. Who's got an answer? The church will be saying, here we are, trying to tell you about Jesus all the time. About Jesus all the time. I think we can encourage ourselves in that. Amen? I'm thankful that he has provided for us a firm foundation for life. I'm thankful for that. Thankful for that. Would you close with me? And let's just, let's just bow. Let's thank God that we have a firm foundation, and because of that, we have become a firm foundation for the world. Jesus is our foundation, and in a sense, the church is the world's foundation. We have to stay stable and uphold the truth that God has revealed to us in his word. Let us be the church. If you're here this morning, maybe there's a sense in which, like me, you've been reminded over the past few weeks, I, just my experience has been in the past few weeks, how little control I have over things that I think I can keep control over. I plan my schedule, and then things I can't control happen and everything goes haywire. And I'm reminded of the fact that I'm not the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ is the foundation of the world. And I'm reminded of the fact that when everything appears to me to be going haywire, it's not really. There's one who holds us and will keep us through it all. So that's my encouragement to you this morning, that you would look to the Lord Jesus and find rest for your soul today. Find that reminder that your life has a foundation. Things can spin madly for a while, but there's always true north. There's always true north. There's always the true foundation upon which our lives are built. And we can encourage ourselves in the person of Jesus Christ today. Lord, this is the real battle of life, to be rooted and grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Lord, as we sing so truly in our hymns, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus 
blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Lord, this is such a, uh, well, it seems almost kindergartenish in its simplicity to remind ourselves of something so basic. But Lord, in the world in which we're living today, would you remind us that our lives have a true foundation and his name is Jesus Christ and that because of him, we have been laid out on this world as a foundation. And dare we humbly say, that the world needs us, needs the church, needs the church to be the church, kindly, lovingly, but truthfully to be the church. So we'd ask today that in the shifting sands of culture and in the sometimes seemingly out of control events of our lives, that we would just take a step back and remember Jesus Christ as our firm foundation, that we would find our rest in him, and Lord, that finding our rest in him, we would be a people that can provide stability and direction to the world around us, a world desperately in need. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you have provided for us through Jesus Christ. Thank you for the hope that is ours in Christ. Lord, I just ask this morning that if there's any brother or sister whose life has been marked by discouragement, maybe some fears, a sense of turmoil, being out of control, Lord, I just pray that you would remind them today that they are held securely in the hand of the God that we sang about this morning. Behold our God seated on his throne. Lord, the one who never changes and who never fails, that our hope would be securely placed in the Lord Jesus Christ, firm in him, rooted established, strengthened, built up in our Savior. Would you strengthen your people today? Encourage us in this very simple, basic truth this morning. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, thanks for being the church. And uh, I've been reminded again of what a foundational part of our lives this fellowship is. We're just grateful for you all. Love you guys and thankful for you all. It's, um, I'm just looking, Lord, let there be nothing else that takes me away a week from now. <laughs> I don't want to go anywhere. Just let us hang out together for a while and enjoy each other's company. I'm thankful, I'm thankful for you all. God bless you. Have a, have a great afternoon. Hope to see you at small group tonight.